Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find it right on the homepage of my website, sumatisparks.com. That's S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A-T-I, Sparks, as in Sparks are flying, dot com. And when you enter your email, you'll be added to my mailing list as well, and you'll be the first to learn about both my online events as well as my live events in the San Francisco Bay Area. So this evening, I'm really looking forward to speaking with our guest, Dr. Namita Khan, is a clinical sexologist, a sex and intimacy and relationship coach, and a sexological body worker. She's originally from the UK and has been living and practicing in the Bay Area for almost 20 years. She works with individuals and couples who are looking for help with their own sexuality or within their relationship. And open relationships are one of the areas for which clients seek her help and support. Welcome to the show, Dr. Khan. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. So can you start by telling us about your own experience with open relationship and um, your current relationship status? Absolutely. Um, well, let's see. This is going back a long way in time. Um, my first experience. <laughs> <laughs> Great. My my first experience was when I just arrived in the Bay Area. I was young. I was inexperienced. I was in my twenties, and everything was brand new to me. And just the um, alternative aspect of the Bay Area just felt very exciting. And so, diving into polyamory felt like an experiment that I was, you know, I was up for. And the person that I was having sex with, that my lover at the time, had another lover. And so that was the arrangement. And it was never really discussed. Since I was stepping into a pre-existing situation, I was the newcomer. And I didn't mm-hmm. really question whether this was going to work for me. I just jumped into a new ag- adventure. And mm-hmm. um, in reality, I was thrown in at the deep end. And I found Uh it very challenging to navigate this new kind of arrangement. Um, At first, it was very exciting. And I found myself eager to be accommodating. I felt this sense of freedom in the openness of it and the possibility of being sexually intimate with more than one person. And I think part of me saw it as hip and cool and the thing to do in a new place. And I didn't really give it it much thought or consideration on a deeper level. And as time went by, I I began to feel lonely. I missed my lover. I didn't have enough time with my lover. And I was missing the depth of connection that I associated with the previous relationships that I had been in, which were monogamous relationships. And this relationship felt very sexual. It was very fun. It was very exciting. There was a lot of tension, but I felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then I began to feel jealous 
and I felt jealous a lot of the time. I had feelings of low self-worth that began stirring in me. Um, I started comparing myself to the other lovers, and I really didn't know how to address um, the feelings that I would have and how to explore them in a constructive way. So then what happened is I attempted to balance things out by seeking other lovers and got lots of lovers and lots of partners myself, um, but felt unsatisfied and really longing for more time with the person that I construed to be my primary partner. And then it, it, just, it just didn't work for me, and I eventually broke it off. Mm-hmm. And I tried a number more times with other lovers, and it, it became easier and more satisfying as important aspects such as communication and boundaries and agreements started to be introduced and discussed. And I spoke to many people. I went to polygroups and I went to open relationship meetings and meetups. And some people seemed to have found ways to navigate it beautifully. And other people were really, really struggling. Um, And it was hard to really get a, a grasp of what I felt like I needed to know in order to be good at it. And eventually I just found myself identifying more with the concepts of fluidity or Dan Savage's famous word monogamish um, and and being more curious um, than than full-on polyamory. Mm -hmm. So now, back to present, now I'm currently in a predominantly monogamous relationship with room for that fluidity and that exploration within a safe container. And my personal preference is that exploration happen as a couple rather than outside the relationship. For me, that feels inclusive, yet it feels sexy and adventurous. And ultimately, everyone has to find what works for them and their Mm -hmm. partnership. And that's going to vary tremendously. The, The spectrum is so broad and so varied. Right. Yeah, that's that's wonderful that you found a way to kind of land in being monogamish where there's some fluidity there, but you solved the problem of feeling that loneliness of not having the depth of a primary partner. Yes, yes, exactly. I heard you say that at first you were eager to be accommodating, and that's a very common thing I find with people that are exploring non-monogamy is um, – and, and also what you said about kind of like when in Rome, right? Like, oh, I guess that's what people do here in Northern California. <laughs> so you just kind of went along and you were hip and cool and you were really accommodating. But then as, you, as our attachment increases with a person, then we want to be seen and acknowledged. And I remember having that experience where I was dating a married poly man and I wanted um, – I, did, I kept trying to find another lover, but I was so in love with him that my other lovers just kept running off into monogamy land. They didn't take me seriously because I had another love. And I remember my cat was really sick, and I had to just scoop him up in my arms and take him to the hospital by myself. And I was driving in the car going, why am I doing this alone? I should have a partner here supporting me. And I realized that just having one married lover wasn't enough for me, that I needed somebody who could be there for me in those times of crisis, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I think it's, yeah. it's easy. It's easy to, to go to um, a place where 
we're evaluating how much time we have with someone that we develop um, often some very strong feelings for. And in the mm-hmm. beginning, when it feels more casual, it's fun, it's light. Wow, this is so sexy. We've also got tons of hormones brewing at that point. And yeah. then when things yeah. settle, right, those, those give it a nice boost to the situation. And then, and then when things start to settle in a little bit, and, and it feels like time is divided between a certain amount of people. It may just be divided between two people. But um, to me, it just felt like I wasn't getting enough of that time and the other person was getting more than me. Right, right, right. So I want to ask you more about how you work with your clients having had these experiences in your life. But let's start by having you tell us about your practice because you have a PhD in clinical psychology and you do all kinds of relationship and intimacy and sex coaching, but then you also have this sexological body worker background. So how do you integrate all that into your practice? Sure. Um, Well, my, my PhD is in um, human sexuality and my, uh, my original, yeah, my original BA uh, back in England uh, where I first took my BA, that was in psychology. Um, yes, my practice um, has a coaching component and a bodywork component. And the, the coaching component is probably the one that I use the most. Um, sexological bodywork, which is the bodywork component, is not for everybody. But I'm happy to talk a little more about that as well. In, in my practice, working with couples and individuals of every gender orientation, um, and um, and style and interest, I help them to create uh, a sex life and a relationship that works for them. So I work with a lot of folks who have trauma or physical challenges, folks who have sexual dysfunction, and folks who simply want to explore or open their relationship. And um, in my practice, which is very somatic and experiential, I include a lot of practice exercises to help clients become more embodied and to connect to touch and to their pleasure. Um, Coaching, just as far as talk therapy, I have found is not as helpful as being able to include aspects with touch and somatic and experiential practices. And then taking that one step further to be able to offer someone a practice of sexological body work is really a way for the client to be able to reconnect with their body in a very intimate way. So that's not a practice that's for everybody, um, but it is a practice that can be extremely helpful. And sometimes I think of it as a little bit of a shortcut to addressing some of the challenges that people are experiencing with their bodies and with their sexuality. I find it particularly helpful in cases where clients have a lot of trauma or are experiencing a lot of physical challenges, and that could be due to age, the body changing as we age, due to, for example, menopause or something's happened. Maybe there's been non-consensual sex in this person's history or they've developed um, some issues around body image and they're having difficulty really loving and appreciating their body. So having something like sexological body work is really uh, an incredible gift to be able to, to work with clients in this way 
And again, it's not for everybody. There are some folks for whom that is much too intimate. And then what I would do instead is give them exercises to practice at home that would Uh be self-pleasure practice exercises to help deepen their connection with their body. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, that's a great set of tools because I know that when people have sexual trauma, we often leave our bodies, and so we kind of need a safe place to come back home to really be able to experience the pleasure that Spirit gave us. So it's beautiful yeah. that you have that offering. Yeah. So normally I ask people to call in for questions the second half of the hour, but we have an early caller. So are you game for seeing what kind of question they have? Sure, sure. Okay, let's see what they have to say. Hello, caller. Please introduce yourself and go ahead and ask your question. Anyone there? Well, I guess there's somebody accidentally called in. Okay, let's go back to our conversation. <laughs> um, so you talked about when you were practicing non-monogamy, and you first started to feel jealous and have all these other feelings, and you just didn't have the tools to manage it at first. You just felt overcome with all these feelings. So how do you teach your clients now? What have you learned about managing that soup of feelings when you're with multiple relationships? How do you teach others to deal with that now? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think that... um, the fact that I have been through some of the challenges that they're experiencing themselves is really, really helpful. Um, of course, no one else's experience is going to completely serve you, but it's so valuable to be able to speak and connect with someone who's been there and who understands what you might be going through and who can empathize and support you in identifying some of the main areas that you might be struggling with. So there are some sort of classic areas that couples tend to bump up against as they they start their exploration into what is sometimes a completely new venture for them, Um, being able to identify their boundaries. I had no idea back then that it was even okay to have boundaries. I thought I was stepping into an <laughs> yes, it was it was like boundaries, what's that? I felt like I was stepping into somebody else's arrangement and it was up to me to just adjust. The idea that I could participate in helping to define the parameters of what worked for me, what didn't work for me and what we were all open to and not open to, as well as the limits of our capacity to be able to be in such a relationship. So boundaries and communication. I had no communication skills, really, very little communication training, even with a degree in psychology, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. To be able to navigate um, really interacting and communicating with love and compassion and empathy and care for each other's feelings and each other's needs. Um, there are so many sort of um, typical hurdles that couples might encounter. And so I think being able to speak with someone and to be offered a space to explore that and to see what works specifically for them, not what works for other people, but what works specifically for them and to design their relationship 
based on their unique needs and what really matters to them. Mm-hmm. So how do you specifically help people move through jealousy and those kinds of discomfort around feeling like they're not enough or they're, they're not special or those kinds of feelings? It's very tricky. Um, jealousy is one of those very tricky emotions. But I think being able to acknowledge that, that clients are feeling it, having someone say to you, you know, what are you feeling and whatever you're feeling is okay and let's explore it and let's see where it's coming from and then let's see what's underneath it, what the need is beneath the jealousy, beneath the idea mm-hmm. that they're, you're, they're questioning their self-worth or not feeling special or feeling completely overwhelmed by the situation. And so if we can identify what the need is, we can begin to find ways to address that need. And that may help with being able to move through and heal some of the intensity of the feelings that are often coming from a very triggered, reactive place where someone's feeling scared. Most of the time, it's fear that's underneath all of this, fear that I'm going to be abandoned, fear that I'm not good enough, fear that the other person is more attractive or a better lover or more interesting or smarter, um, fear that I won't have enough to offer, um, you know, fill in, fill in the blank. And if we can mm-hmm. address that fear and see what it is that is going to help the person feel seen and heard and held and safe in the container in which they find themselves. So creating a really safe and secure container is really important. And if we have that in place and we have secure attachment in place, that gives us some room to navigate when things get wobbly or things get difficult or or we meet a situation that, that has conflict. Right. And, yeah, I see that a lot with couples who are open is that the one who's feeling jealous, and I'll just use that as an umbrella term for they're triggered by something that their partner does. Um, mm-hmm. And they start, to focus, they start to focus on a solution or a boundary or an agreement instead of, so for example, they might say, you know, I want you to come home by 11 o'clock as opposed to saying when you stay out after 11, I feel scared to be home alone or I feel like maybe you're never coming home and it triggers my abandonment, right? So there's like a deeper thing under it. So, I notice when people start going right to the solution or right to the agreement, they're bypassing those painful feelings that they have to uncover. Do you find that to be true? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, sometimes there's this, this, this urge to fix it. How can I fix mm-hmm. it? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's coming from a good place. What's the solution? What's the solution? However, people really need to feel heard and they need to feel like they are being empathized with, that it's not mm-hmm. just how do we fix this challenge that you have, but how do we develop empathy for each other so we can see how we might feel if I come home, as you said, after the agreed-upon time, and now you're panicking mm-hmm. and you're starting to worry. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you also talked about how you used to feel a lot of self, low self-worth when you were young and first exploring this lifestyle. Um, so how did you um, get 
to feel more solid about yourself and then how do you teach others to do that? That is that that's a good question and we're going way back. I had um a lot of difficulty with my body. I remember having feelings of low self-worth around my body image and around how I perceived myself to be unattractive or not attractive enough or or not sexy enough or not thin enough mm-hmm. or whatever it was. And mm-hmm. so I had to really learn to reconnect with my body and to love my body and to appreciate my body. And so I ended up doing a lot of self-empowerment workshops and I ended up doing a lot of Tantra workshops, some of which included nudity and included a lot of introspective work in looking at uh, my connection to how I felt about myself in this body. And slowly I began to change that relationship and to discover an appreciation for my body um, that I had not had before. And it is still a work in progress. It's absolutely Mm -hmm. a work in progress. But my focus is on appreciating and being grateful for this body rather than letting myself drift into uh, criticism and unkind thoughts about it. Right. Yeah, boy, we're a lot alike in that area. I had such huge body image issues. And the thing that healed me more than anything else was going to a clothing optional hot springs where I could see what real bodies looked like. So I was in my 20s. And, of course, I was gorgeous. You have to work really hard not to be beautiful when you're 25. (laughs) No, but I thought I didn't look like the women in the magazines and the billboards. And so there was something wrong with me. But when I went to this clothing optional place and I saw, oh, all women have a little belly. Oh, all women have a little bit of bumpiness on the back of their legs. Oh, that's how women really look. Nobody looks like those magazines. And so that was a huge step for me in going forward to loving my body was just being able to see other bodies. That's wonderful. So I like that you said that you went to the the Tantra, yeah. Yes, and and you're reminding me now of of an old story that that I had completely forgotten about, which is that I um, somehow got myself involved in signing up to do a play in Berkeley um, and this was in my 20s. This was with with the partner with whom I was exploring polyamory. And I ended up in this play, but what I didn't know at the time was that the requirement was going to be to do the play in the nude. Ooh. And so, <laughs> yeah. And, and so this came as a big shock for a nice British girl. And that, <laughs> again, <laughs> that part of me that wanted to just say yes to everything, be cool, and and the, it was the thought, you're never going to be asked to do this again. If you don't do it now, you might never get this opportunity again. There's probably some hidden benefit to you doing this. You should do it. Mm-hmm. And so that voice just propelled me to doing it. And I did, in fact, perform this play in the nude, Um, in a church in Berkeley and I think that was a pivotal point for me in just exposing myself completely naked to an audience and thinking okay um, it may have been a little bit like you going to to the to the hot springs you know here I am I've done it now I'm out here and um, and there's no going back so I remember that story very fondly and when I tell English friends about it they're absolutely horrified 
and and impressed at the same time. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's amazing. Wow, I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to do that. So you're very adventurous. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you also talked about how you work with women. So now I'm in the category of the menopausal women, you know, after menopause, and definitely experienced a difference in sex drive, um, you know, body image stuff around that. Um, so tell me what, how you help people who are having various issues with um, lower sex drive or, um, you know, couples that maybe one of them wants to be more sexual than the other. How do you deal with that? Sure. So, so let's see. I'll answer the the question about women going through the menopause first. Um, I do get a lot of women calling who are really feeling very sad, uh, feeling very sad and confused about the fact that their libido appears to have changed. They they even say that they've lost their desire completely. And so I try very hard to reassure them that it's not lost. Um, that it may be a little buried, that there's a lot going on in the body, a lot of changes are taking place, and that they show up so very differently for each woman. There are women who Mm -hmm. don't even notice that they're going through the menopause. It's just a blip. It's as if nothing Mm -hmm. changed, except that they now are not menstruating. And then there are other women for whom it is much more intense and much more severe. And so being able to find ways to connect with the body that include healing and self-care and nurturing and that aren't necessarily sexual in the same way that they used to be, but that keep the connection to the body alive. So exploring what feels good and pleasurable and satisfying at this point in time, knowing that the body will ebb and flow and that there will be a postmenopausal period Oftentimes, I've noticed that women who are postmenopausal, who had a hard time during menopause and weren't feeling particularly sexually interested, seem to regain it. There's almost mm-hmm. a sort of going through the tunnel and coming out the other end that seems to happen. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. if if you know if the 50s, uh, late 50s, early 60s is a sort of typical menopausal time have many, many clients in their 60s who have a very high libido and a sort of, uh, sort of reconnecting with something that they feel had subsided during their menopausal years. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's good news. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. So, so each decade is different, and, and each day is different, never mind each decade. Each day is different, and we, um, if we can attune to what the body is feeling right now, what does my body want right now? What would feel good to me right now? Not necessarily what did I like 10 years ago or what usually works, but what feels nurturing and healing and satisfying and sensual and possibly sexual and erotic to me now, in this moment, on this day. Um, Then we're staying in present time and we're really following and tracking the body. As far as um, couples, couples who come in, and, and this is very common, this is very, very common, and, and you, you, I'm sure you know this too, um, it's very common that, that one person will label themselves or describe themselves as having 
a higher libido than their partner or a higher sex drive than their partner. A lot of people um, come in saying that their desire is mismatched and, and they feel like they're chasing their partner or the other partner feels like they're constantly fighting their partner off and feeling bad about it. Again, I think that it's really important both to have a connection with our partner, but also to have a connection with oneself. So when somebody isn't feeling as sexually uh, alive as their partner, I think it's great for the partner who is feeling more sexual interest to, to take care of their needs on one side of things and also for us to start to re-examine what is going to work for this couple now. Do they really know what it is that turns them on? Does the partner who's not interested really know what it is that might work for them? What is their sexual style? What are their sexual interests at this point in time, at this point where they're feeling less interest than they used to? I think sometimes couples sort of go through the motions of what has typically worked. They fall into a little bit of a routine and they sort of go through the motions of what feels okay, it's all right, you know, it's worked in the past, it's, it's not bad, but it's not great either, and have never really stopped to examine if sex could be the way that I really wanted it to be, what would I actually ask for? What is it that I want? Have I ever really had it? Do I even mm-hmm. know what it is? And so in a sense, right. having, you know, having that hurdle of one person more interested in the other is, is sort of a gateway to re-examining what their sex life is and maybe finding new ways to connect that feel, you know, that feel really intimate and feel like they're meeting the needs of both people. Right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Dr. Namita Khan, who's a clinical sexologist, a sex intimacy and relationship coach. And we're talking about the various issues with the body and sexuality. We were focusing on um, menopause right now and how common it is for couples to come in to see her where um, the woman's body may have changed after menopause and how they deal with that. If you'd like to ask Dr. Khan a question, feel free to call in. The number is 657-383-1132. Again, that's 657-383-1132. And you won't interrupt us. I'll answer the call at the right time. So go ahead and call in if you have any questions. And just on that same topic of couples that have a mismatched sex drive, um, do you find that the woman after menopause, may, it may change what she needs to get turned on from when she was younger. And do you ever find um, resistance from their male partners around making those changes? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to be speaking just from um, the perspective of the types of clients that come in to see me. And I mm-hmm. find that oftentimes... Um, the male partner, so we, if, if, if we take the heterosexual, if we're looking at heterosexual couples just to, just to sort of create a framework, um, of course there's many, many varieties of different couples, but for the heterosexual couple, 
I often find that the male clients that I see, and again, these are just the people who are coming into my office, are extremely supportive. Um, Mm -hmm. I find that they've sort of been sitting in the sidelines uh, quite patiently um, wanting to um, interact with their partner in a sexual way on a more regular basis and patiently waiting as their partner goes through the changes that she's going through. So if there are things that come to light that would be more pleasurable, I think that oftentimes these male partners are are completely on board and wanting to help support and explore whatever is going to work, especially if someone's experiencing pain and there's physical pain associated with menopause. Mm -hmm. And so sex isn't just less interesting, but it actually doesn't feel good because there's Mm -hmm. discomfort and there's pain involved. And so finding ways to create pleasure without necessarily doing the things that we used to do and finding new ways to create pleasure. I have found that the most of the male clients that I've had in my office are very supportive. Um, and, and partly they're just happy that there's some sexual interaction happening again after mm-hmm. what may have been right. a very long hiatus. <laughs> right. Yeah, I could see it would be a little self-selecting. The ones that are showing up at a therapist's office are motivated to learn. <laughs> um, yes. So would you would you ever suggest opening a relationship to any of your clients who come to you with a sexless marriage? Like let's say that the woman really just doesn't, she's just done. Like she doesn't want to do any special exercises. She's just like over it. So would you ever recommend them opening your marriage or do you just wait for clients to bring that to you? Um. I try not to make too many recommendations to to my clients. I what I try to do is to share possibilities. So mm-hmm. I share possibilities and invite clients to consider options. So we're going to sort of map out lots of different options without making specific suggestions or recommendations or giving advice. I believe that with enough insight and exploration and information and support, they're going to be able to come to their own decisions. Um, I do, however, recommend that clients be in in what we call a good place with each other um, and that their relationship is solid and loving and caring and that they're both on the same page when considering opening up their relationship. Um, Because it takes dedication, it takes time, and it takes great communication uh, to be able to do so. Um, It's not the Band-Aid for a struggling relationship. It's it's definitely not the Band-Aid for a struggling relationship. Um, And it might be a very viable possibility for someone who is happy with their partner, they want to stay in the relationship, they're, com- they're committed to each other, one of them does not want to have sex, the other one does, maybe this is actually a solution that will work for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly my speciality, is couples who are opening their relationship later in life, um, when they realize that we don't have to dismantle this whole empire that we built together just because our sex life isn't working. 
um, because they might be getting along famously in all the other aspects of their relationship and only only the sex part isn't working. And, you know, mainstream culture would tell us that they have to sell their house and move apart and split up their family and their business just because their sex life isn't working. But we know now that there are other options. Um, And it may be hard for their families at first to um, accept that they're not monogamous anymore. Um, But usually they're mature enough that they can hold that and just be who they are. Um, So when you have couples that come to you wanting to open their relationship, are there any red flags um, that they should be watching out for? Or what do you do when you encounter this? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you're probably an expert at, at, at this um, since you work so much in this field. Um, but some of the red flags for me, yes, there are definitely red flags. And, and um, for example, a struggling relationship. A struggling relationship where the partners are in conflict with each other, um, partners that are fighting a lot, that are angry, mm-hmm. uh, folks mm-hmm. that are on the verge of divorce or who have mm-hmm. very poor communication with each other. And, mm-hmm. Or sometimes the idea that if somebody's had an affair, this is a justifiable payback. Um, mm, yeah. These, yeah, I've had, I've had that um, happen uh, more than once as well. Well, he or she had an affair, now we're opening up. That seems like the fair thing to do. So mm-hmm. something that's coming on the backlash of, of another conflict um, is, is absolutely a red flag. And when it's coming from a place of, of boredom or stress or dissatisfaction or conflict, these would be some of the red flags that I encounter. And I'll encourage a couple to work on stabilizing their relationship first. Stabilizing it first getting back to a good place if, if that's possible, and then deciding whether they're still interested in opening up their relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I interviewed someone on my podcast who said that he's just a one-trick pony as a relationship coach, and it's, for him it's all about communication. So um, you've mentioned communication several times so far today. Um, so why is communication so important in relationships? Oh, yes. I, 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 I might be a bit of a one-trick pony in that way, too. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I completely concur. And, you know, I think back at what was missing when I first set out on this journey um, and the skills that, that I've acquired along the way that are so foundational to being able to navigate relationship in general. So, Communication is is a primary key to any relationship, be it monogamous or poly or everything in between. And all too often we assume that we know what the other person is thinking or we know how they might feel about something and we act as if we had the the ability to to mind read, Uh, especially sexually. Mm -hmm. People seem to think that they can mind read each other. Um, and communication is a learned skill. It's a practice, and it takes time to both learn how to really listen on on a deeper level, and to speak up and to ask for what we need. And without ongoing regular communication, um, we're simply guessing, we're surmising, and we're often avoiding really important conversations. 
Um, I like to, to identify the elephant in the room with my clients. And the elephant just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the more difficult to ignore, the more we postpone it and put off what really needs to be addressed, what's often screaming to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So with good communication, um, we have connection. Um, it gives us an opportunity to voice our needs, our desires and challenges, and it creates intimacy. It creates bonding. It creates intimacy and allows us to be vulnerable and to be real with each other and to show up for each other. It's primary. It's, it's, the, it's the rock. It's the bedrock of, of relationship for me. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so it, that is, I find that really hard for us as human beings. We don't have communication in grade school or any of our schooling. Um, and so we get to be adults <laughs> and we're trying to have intimacy and we're just fumbling around. And it's so hard to figure out what we want, let alone ask for it. So how do you help people? Let's just narrow it down to, you know, sexuality um, because I find, you know, I, I'm in my 50s and I might date a new person who's in his 60s. And I, I, I think, really, like, no woman ever told you not to stick your tongue down her throat on the first date, like, <laughs> like the moment <laughs> you start to kiss her. Like, so I'm, I'm thinking, okay, his whole life he's been with women who've never told him what they want. And I know that's cultural, too, that women are supposed to just go, oh, yes, haha, everything's fine. I don't want to damage your ego. So there's that cultural conditioning. But also mm-hmm. that sometimes we don't even know what we want. We kind of need a drop-down menu to give us ideas. <laughs> so how do you help people, like, tune in to what they want so that they can then stand up for themselves and ask for it? Um, that's, a, that's a really great skill to have is um, to be able to actually identify what it is that I want. And I love that you said the drop-down menu. Most people do not have their own drop-down menu. And I think what, what, I, what I want to teach them and empower them to develop is to have a drop-down menu, to create their own menu, to be able mm. to explore all the different ways in which they can experience touch all the different ways in which they can touch another person and be touched, what feels good in this moment. And I think being able to sort of turn the volume down on the mental chatter and on our, our pretty much overactive minds and to start to listen to what the body wants. So it's not so much, you know, what do I think would be a cool thing to do right now or what should I ask for? but to actually stop and take some time and drop into the body and allow the body to talk to us as if the body has a voice, which it does, and to listen Uh to the wisdom of the body. And I think starting slow and being vulnerable, being vulnerable enough to say, I love that you're asking me for what I want, and and I'm going to say I don't even know. I don't even know what I want. For Uh someone to feel brave enough to be able to do that opens up the door to slowing down exploration and being able to um, ex- uh, experiment, having many workshops with each other where you made the analogy of the kissing, teaching someone how I would like to be kissed, 
teaching mm-hmm. someone how I would like my foot rubbed, teaching somebody how I would like oral sex performed on me, teaching mm-hmm. someone how I would like to have a sensual massage, and just starting to create a much broader menu by not feeling like we have to go through some of the sort of typical standard activities that many and most people do that show that we know what we're doing or that we appear to know what we're doing. And and sort of letting go of all of that and being organic in the moment, even if that means admitting that I don't know what I want in this very moment and allowing it to unfold as we check in with the body and see what the body's in the mood for. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. You can see where your sexological body work comes in to play there, really teaching people to inhabit their bodies and listen to it speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can imagine that that's a really helpful tool for people recovering from trauma too. Um, you said some people have suffered non-consensual sex. Is that um, a tool that you use to help people recover from that and uh, come back to their their natural state of pleasure? Yes, absolutely. And unfortunately, many, many people have experienced non-consensual sex. Um, and and so they've, they've lost a sense of boundaries. They've lost a sense of autonomy. And being able to start to realize that they have a yes, a no, and a maybe inside them about anything that is proposed to them from a partner sexually or sensually or erotically um, is going to be so important. So we will work with boundaries and establishing boundaries. And there are many exercises that we'll do in the office that help the person be able to reconnect with what their body is telling them. Do I want somebody to touch me now? Do I not want someone? And if so, how would I like to be touched? How close would I feel comfortable with you standing next to me? And starting to be able to tune in, as you said, to the body's wisdom. Um, Because these people have often lost the ability to even believe that that's something that is theirs, that that they deserve that, that they own that, that, that they have autonomy over their own bodies. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. So um, before we run out of time, I want to go back a little bit to um, non-monogamy versus monogamy. Um, so based on your personal experiences, what are some of the differences you see uh, with regard to intimacy um, for people in polyamorous versus monogamous relationships? Um, let's see. Um, some of them feel the same. Um, I, let's see, I, I, in general, um, being able to, um, the, the, having the experience of, of jealousy, um, I think is more apparent in, um, in open relationships um, mm-hmm. because sometimes the feelings are just so much more intense. Um, mm-hmm. It's not that we don't experience those very same feelings in monogamous relationships, but in polyamorous or open relationships, I think we're sort of thrown into having um, more intense feelings um, 
due to due to just the the setup of having more people involved. However, mm-hmm. um, there's plenty of jealousy in monogamous relationships as well, and mm-hmm. and often it feels more buried and it's less on the surface and it's less talked about, but it's definitely there, and um, and it's definitely something that comes up quite a bit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so jealousy is a big one. Um, and then do you find that um, polyamorous people can have as deep of relationships as monogamous people, emotionally deep? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, I, I did not have that experience myself, but I was also lacking all of the cornerstones of the things that needed to be considered in order to make that a possibility. So absolutely, I think it's based on the type of people they are and Mm -hmm. what's important for them to include in relationship. It also depends on um, what it is that they're looking for, the reason why they want to be polyamorous. Are they looking for several separate but equally um, equally deep, caring relationships that include communication and friendships and some of the things that you expect to find in a more monogamous relationship? Or are they looking for just more casual sex? Why is this person mm-hmm. engaging in polyamory? What does it mean to them? And what is their commitment to each person that they're involved with? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's a, there are as many forms of non-monogamy as there are people practicing it. So it really is just about what they want and to be able to tell their partners that that's who they are and that's what they're doing. And not how I think in monogamy, there's certain assumptions that we make. Um, but when you're being non-monogamous, you really have to talk about how you want to do it more. So that invites more communication, I, I would imagine. I think it invites uh, a, a lot more communication. Um, polyamory, I think, has, has you've probably heard this, has been described as, as sort of the grad school of relationships in, right. terms of, <laughs> in terms of the amount of communication skills and commitment and processing that, um, that needs to happen in order for everybody to feel that they're getting their needs attended to and listened to and that their needs are, are being supported and understood and the ability to have empathy for each other um, when obstacles and hurdles come up. And the attachment mm-hmm. container um, that's, that's created is going to reflect how big of a step people are taking um, in, in being able to be in a relationship that has challenges that are different from a monogamous relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I find there's a lot more intensity and excitement and growth in non-monogamous relationships, but it's a trade-off. So in monogamy, there's more security, stability, um, peace, <laughs> kind of, you know, you can kind of focus on your career or other things because you're not trying to manage all these relationships. So it gives you, it frees up your time to kind of go out and be something in the world. 
um, but it's not. But you don't have that excitement and that intensity and that necessity for all the communication. So it's kind of a trade-off. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. And um, and and you know, given the statistics on on monogamy, you know, and the and the high the high divorce rate, um, statistics tends to show that monogamy might not work as well as people might perceive it to. And mm-hmm. that there are things happening within the monogamous container that might reflect some of what you just described in terms of um, the the struggles that people have that are just more hidden and more contained um, and less on the surface because there's only two people involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, like you were you were doing it when you were young and you didn't have as many communication skills and um, your body image issues were still running you. And um, so it's not necessarily the form of the relationship. It's the skills that we build to be able to engage in any kind of relationship, um, whether it's poly or mono. Um, so, you know, I've, I've interviewed two women who on two different occasions who chose and they often tell their their young women clients that if you're single and you really want to experience what a healthy relationship looks like I recommend that you date a couple for a period of time as long as it's consensual as long as the couple knows that you're kind of doing this as an experiment and you know if you're a young woman dating a couple it's called a unicorn because everybody wants one right so they can kind of call the shots (laughs) <laughs> so mm-hmm. they can say, mm-hmm. "Hey, I want to, I want to date you. You got you as a couple for a limited period of time. I don't, I don't know how long. It's, I'm going to want a primary partner down the road, but they want to experience being in the middle of a healthy relationship and viscerally experience what that feels like. Um, and I thought that was really interesting that two different young relationship coaches teach that to their young women clients, or are suggested as an option. <laughs> um, uh-huh. So my question for you is, what do you see as the healthy characteristics that a couple needs um, needs to possess to open their relationship safely and beneficially? Um, well, as you said, um, you know, being at a certain level of communication skills um, being um, committed to growth, being committed to connecting through growth and communication and exploring and processing what needs to be uh, addressed and having the time and the patience for it. And also coming from a committed, conscious, thoughtfully considered place. So mm-hmm. having given some thought to what needs to be, um, what needs to be considered the boundaries, the agreements, the limits, the time, um, what kind of open are we ready for right now? Should we start this very slowly with baby steps, knowing that we can always pull back and change things if it doesn't work, knowing Mm -hmm. and expecting to possibly make some mistakes along the way and that we're going to learn from our mistakes. Um, rather than feeling like, oh, my God, I can't believe we did that. That was a terrible idea. But rather like, huh, okay, well, that worked and that didn't work so well. How should we tailor it now? 
So having them sort of be on a team together where they are their strongest ally and mm-hmm. they really prioritize each other and the relationship. Beautiful. I love that. So, boy, the, the hour just ran out on us very quickly here. So I want to make sure that you have time to tell our listeners how they can reach you. And I believe you also have uh, an offer that you want to give to our listeners. Um, but first, I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Khan, for being on the podcast. It was a delight speaking with you, and you have so much wisdom, and I'm really honored that you you were here with us today. So go ahead and, and tell tell people how they can reach you and what you have to offer. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, well, I would like to offer your listeners um, um, to enter into a drawing, and the prize for the drawing is a 90-minute individual or couples coaching session with me. And the way to enter the drawing is to go to my website, which is sexandintimacycoaching.com. That's sexandintimacycoaching.com. And if you sign up on my website um, by tomorrow evening, which is Wednesday evening, which should be Wednesday the 19th at 10 p.m., if you sign up for my mailing list, I will enter you into the drawing. And if you're an existing client and you're just listening in and you're already on my mailing list, just email me and I'll enter you into the drawing. And be sure to mention that you heard about this offer um, on Sumati's radio show. Great. That's very generous of you. Thank you. And you're so very they welcome. Can also, and so your website also has... Uh, uh, contact form or your email address on it? Yeah, so my website will have a contact form that will get you onto the mailing list. You can also contact me if you're interested in a complimentary um, coaching consultation or if you'd like to find out more about the work that I do. And my phone number is also on the website if you want to call me directly. Perfect. Well, thanks again for being on the show. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. Okay, good night. And you've been listening to Leading Edge Love Radio with Sumati Sparks at sumatisparks.com. And we will be back in a couple weeks after I return from a little autumn getaway. So we'll see you in two weeks. Good night, everyone.